And MDO also is not just Article 5. This is everything we do now should be within that context of MDO because if you're trying to deter Russia from making a terrible mistake, um, they have to see that we are capable of executing multi-domain operations. In this episode of the NATO Senior Mentors Podcast, hosted by the Command Control Center of Excellence, Colonel Miette Groeneveld and Lieutenant Colonel Jan Terbrake questioned retired Lieutenant General Baz Hodges on the topics of C2 structures, multi-domain operations, and the current state of affairs in Ukraine. Lieutenant General Hodges is the former Commanding General of the US Army Europe and now Senior Advisor to Human Rights First, a non-profit, non-partisan, international human rights organization. General Hodges serves as a NATO senior mentor for logistics. He consults for several companies on Europe, NATO and the European Union. And he is the co-author of the book, Future War and the Defense of Europe. Welcome, Ben. It's, uh, it's really great that you allow us to have this uh, podcast recording with you. Um, as you're well aware, you have been part of our uh, COE for a long time. You've been in our seminar last year. Uh, the NATO C2 COE has been involved in this NATO command and control since 2007. And we cooperate and talk to a wide variety of uh, content matter experts, uh, And we noticed that the interpretation of what command and control uh, is, it varies widely. And so it's always good to ask up front, so what would you, would, what's your um, interpretation of command and control? How would you define it? Well, first, let me say thanks for letting me be a part of this. My, my first visit to the Command and Control Center of Excellence was back in uh, 2013 when I was the commander of NATO Allied Land Command. And so I was always looking at ways to support each of the centers of excellence because I thought they were helpful in improving readiness of land forces and interoperability. So I'm happy to see you guys still hard at work. You know, command and control um, has uh, become over the decades kind of a shorthand for all the functions, the, the human functions and the technical functions required to help accomplish military missions. And, and so it's, you know, there's a reason it's command and control, uh, but even that has evolved. And now in the U.S., you know, we talk about mission command. But the point is, it's about uh, coordinating and directing uh, actions of units to accomplish military tasks. Yeah, I have heard some discussions lately also uh, about the difference between command and control, where command is increasingly seen as the human part of it, and control may be increasingly seen as the technical part of it. Do you see this clear distinction, or would you make a different distinction? No, I, I think, to be candid, um, Those kinds of debates are the things that take place in hallways at staff college and uh, the people who write doctrine. And it's not it's not unimportant. I don't mean to be dismissive, but I think, you know, people like the each of you who have been out there and many of your audience who have been on exercise or have been on deployments that you understand that command is that's the uh, responsibility for getting something done. And it's the authority to direct actions to allocate resources uh, and the control part is more the like the instructions that are given with critical times specific routes uh, radio frequencies software application whatever so you could in a way say that there's a difference between the human side which is command and the control which is technical but i would say that uh, that's that's not necessarily a helpful distinction what really matters is understanding that command is the direction and that could be given over different devices or it could be given face to face thank you very much i think that's really helpful in this debate although i i completely agree that this debate is uh, fairly a theoretical debate and the question is how it's helpful for our future 
direction. There's also the debate about an adding even another C to sort of emphasize uh, the consultation part or the collaboration part uh, to it. Um, do you see any reason to do that or to start this debate or would you say keep away from this? Uh, yeah, I hope that you there, uh, at the uh, center of excellence, will kill um, anybody attempting to add another letter to this acronym. I, I don't know how that helps anything. I mean, any good commander um, of any organization is, of course, going to spend time talking with staff, with subordinates, with higher headquarters. The consultation part, if you will, um, is that's part of effective command, but I would not that will only confuse things by adding it somehow to this C2. Plus, you'll have to replace all the signs there at the Center of Excellence for starters. I think it's uh, it's uh, great to, uh, to, to just explicitly uh, state this here. With that, we start this uh, helping uh, to get rid of the discussion about it, I guess. Yeah, again, uh, sir, thanks uh, for contributing to the uh, podcast. And if you also look in the pa- in the piece of uh, a doctrine, eh, you highlighted uh, yourself. The ATP one also uh, related with command and control to structures. It's always difference and finding the right structure also to facilitate and accomplish uh, uh, missions. And they define uh, certain principles for C2 structures in the ATP one laid down as uh, availability, flexibility, clarity, simplicity, and resilience in the principles. But for in your aspect, what would be the most important principle for a C2 structure to accomplish the mission? Because they're used in between, misused, used, uh, and sometimes they forget the clarity themselves while you're actually using those principles. When you say structure, do you mean... uh like a command structure or a a thing? It's a, the command structure, which is set up like in your task organization as well to accomplish the mission. So uh, for me, uh, and I learned this from uh, serving as the uh, aide-de-camp for the SACUR from 1995 to 97, and the SACUR was uh, General George Jowen. And this is the, the time that the uh, Dayton Peace Accords were sorted out and the NATO Implementation Force, I-4, was created and deployed into Bosnia to implement the, uh, there in December of 95, to implement the agreement of the Dayton Peace Accord. And I watched uh, SACUR uh, every day for months work hard to achieve three things for this, uh, uh, the structure of the I-4, the command structure, if you will. Number one was absolute clarity of mission. What what is the purpose? And, and that has to be clear. That's um, the the tendency is to establish a command structure and then go find out what the mission should be instead of what is the what is the mission and then you develop a command structure required to accomplish that mission. So we spent a lot of time with you know the American president, with the Secretary General of NATO uh, Javier Solana, working with Ambassador Holbrook and uh, heads of state and government and chiefs of defense from across the alliance throughout 1995 to get that right. Uh, the second thing that he emphasized, and which I think is still 100% true today, is unity of command. Uh, if you've got you know, multiple people with authorities doing things, then you're never ever going to accomplish that mission. And of course, none of us is going to do anything that's purely one nation anymore. Those days are over. It's always going to be uh, U.S. with allies, allies with other allies. Um, look at all the NATO enhanced for presence battle groups, for example. It's all multinational. So each of us has national caveats and so on, but there can only be one commander. So that's why unity of command has been a principle of war from centuries. So the command structure has to uh, emphasize that and then the third thing, it's got to be able to process so much information. You got to have people complain. It's fun to say, look at these gigantic staffs. Okay, well, there's a reason staffs get big, because in wartime, you're going 24-7. This is not a, a nine-to-five, a bank or a hardware store. 
It's 24-7 for extended periods of time. And the requirements, I was astounded in Iraq and Afghanistan how much information we had to provide up. I mean, from different people. Uh, and my old boss, General Mark DeCryfe, he'll remember this from Kandahar. We were asked the same question from three or four different people from Kabul. So you end up growing a staff to handle information requirements uh, as well as taking care of looking after uh, everybody below you. And it gets a little bit extra hard when you've got uh, intelligence sharing is not happening because of five eyes restrictions or, or whatever else. So you have to have enough people to be able to process information and make sure that the subordinate units have what they need to be able to successfully carry out the mission that they got from the commander. Yeah, copy it all. And if I understand you uh, correctly also, because it's linking the principles together, and I think you mentioned in the uh, in the beginning as well, in the usage of uh, mission command, which are also the most important actually to use it or to set it up in that clarity and, and unity in the contribution of, and when do you use right. it, correct? Yeah, and of course... There's, there's a reason that processes have evolved over time that are very human processes, things that we call the back brief, where you get a mission, you get a task from the higher headquarters, and then you immediately um, play it back to the commander. So I understand the mission essential task you've given me is to do this, this, and this, just to be clear. And then you go away, you do your homework, you do your staff work, and then you come back later uh, and explain, okay, this is how I'm going to accomplish what you told me to do. These are important parts of the process um, to help make sure there's no misunderstanding about who's in charge, what the mission is, who's supporting who, getting that clarity. Uh, and that's tedious sometimes. And, and when you're spread all over RC South, for example, or, or uh, all over RC East, um, it's it's not easy to do. And this is, this is where you need um, devices where you can do this in a distributed way over secure, um, uh, yeah, uh, IT that, that allows multinational formations to rehearse, for example, or do these back briefs. That, that's an important part of it. Uh, I, I will come back at that part of the technology. But first, I would like to dive a little bit into this um, levels. Uh, the, the NATO doctrine makes this clear distinction between the tactical, operational, and strategical levels. And you've commanded at all these levels. And I would be really interested how you would, um, how did the decisions you had to take at the operational level distinct themselves from other levels? So, what are typical operational level decisions? Uh, or or is that a more gradual thing? Um, well, that's that's an interesting question. I I think uh, at the operational level, you begin to uh, get much more joint. You're dealing with other services, Air Force, for example. Um, for me, as an Army guy, when you start getting into operational level campaign planning, for example, you're you're really into the joint with uh, air air power, special forces, and, and so on. Um, whereas tactical is typically uh, more uh, one-dimensional and same service, even if it's multinational. The um, couple of other differences as you're dealing at the operational level, the rank and experience of your subordinates also goes up. Now you're dealing with you know, uh, lieutenant colonels, colonels that are commanding battalions, brigades, uh, and that sort of thing. And, and you're also, for not only are they multinational and joint, but you've got, you know, artillery, logistics, intelligence, engineers, as well as maneuver type units. And uh, so that's that's one of the, the differences. Uh, but also the kind of heat <laughs> and guidance that you're getting from higher when you're at operational level. You know your your higher headquarters may be operational strategic, and so you can feel the significance of political considerations beginning to weigh in. And that's that's not an evil thing; that's the nature of it. Um, so, learning how to um, 
when I was a lieutenant colonel, a battalion commander myself, um, I had a uh, the assistant division commander tell me one time, he said, Ben, the bear has to eat every day. You will get more flexibility if you feed the bear. You'll get to do everything you want to do. And, I, and of course, what he was talking about is, you know, the higher commanders generally most of the time are going to know what they're doing and they'll have more information. So if they tell you to do something, don't waste time arguing about it. Meet their priorities and you end up having more flexibility to do what you want because they will have to spend more time dealing with their subordinates that don't do what they're being told to do. So it was something that I learned. And so at the operational level, um, you know, you have to help, help your strategic commander solve his political problem, keep them informed, and then I, I would always have more flexibility to do what I thought needed to be done at my level. Yeah, it, it is an interesting debate, I think, as technology is really rapidly changing now and um, and all the information that is available to us, um, our connectivity, uh, it really changes our connectivity, I think, and also our decision-making. And that can enable strategic insight uh, at the subordinate level headquarters as well as tactical insights at the strategic level headquarters. And increasingly... Uh, you will be enabled uh, to take decisions more standoff. Uh, and then do you think that will have changes for the understanding of the operational level and maybe more provocative, do we still need all those levels of headquarters? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, we, we made a mistake um, but moving away from division level and core level headquarters, for example. Now, it wasn't because people all of a sudden got stupid. It was because we had a conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan where we were having to generate brigade combat teams. Uh, and in order to source that fight, uh, the division became less relevant and the corps less relevant. And there were even people that would mockingly say, oh, those are just jobs for generals. Um, but now, now that we see... You know, we have to be prepared to fight uh, Russian military forces. Um, and based on what we're watching happen in Ukraine, there's a, a massive sense of urgency to get back to division and core level competence. And, you know, the United States recently established a permanent core headquarters in Poland, for example, to provide the necessary command and control over all of the U.S. capabilities that run from Estonia down through Bulgaria. Um, because you need that level. And, um, you know, at, at the division level and core level, you start getting additional assets, what we call echelon above brigade, echelon above division, that that then can be applied where needed because there's no way a brigade commander can manage all those sorts of assets with the, with the staff. So I'm, I'm a big believer in, uh, in that sort of a traditional um, uh levels of strategic, operational, tactical. And another question. You, you, you emphasized the, the importance of unity of command. And uh, NATO is always, uh, I mean, we're always in a sort of multinational command. And it, it looks a little bit more like a coalition command than a unified command. Um, it, it, it brings up the challenge of multinationality versus uh, how can you organize that in the best way to create a unified command uh, that could be accomplished if you have longer standing coalitions of the willing uh, that cooperate together like the Netherlands and Germany. Or So the, the history of coalition warfare going back many, many centuries has always been that every member of the coalition brings their own interests, priorities, caveats. I mean, this this is normal. I think about, you know, the coalition that was, uh, that saved Vienna in the 17th century. I mean, you've had Poles, you had the Duke of Lorraine, you had all kinds of different people involved, and each of them brought their priorities and agenda. But ultimately, they agreed on who was in charge, and and they got the mission done. It's no different nowadays with NATO. You've got 31 nations, hopefully soon 32, um, working together, and we all have agreements. 
Uh, that doesn't mean that every nation, including my own, doesn't come with their own caveat or their particular agenda and that every nation is reporting back to their capital. This is 100 percent normal. Uh, the key is to acknowledge and recognize that and then figure out how do you still achieve unity of effort and unity of command within that context. I will never forget watching uh, um, how General Jalen, uh working with the Russians. This this was back in 95, you, you may recall, um, that the Russians actually uh, agreed to participate with the I-4, but they refused to be under I-4. And so what General Jalen was able to accomplish working with uh, General Grachov at the time, who I think was the Minister of Defense, um, said, okay, look, he approached him as a professional soldier, said, General, you know you can't have units just on their own wandering around the battlefield. It'll end up being terrible accidents and so on. So what he worked out with him uh, and that the Russians agreed to was what today we would call take on tactical control. And on the and on the poster that showed who worked for who, there was a dotted line that went to the Russian brigade. The Russians were happy. We were happy. And, and we achieved the unity of effort that was necessary and the importance of having Russians being a part of this. That, that seems like a million years ago now when you think about Russia today. But, I mean, I, I, I remember that. He was able to talk to him as a professional soldier and explain it. Yeah, you're already highlighting some uh, uh Lessons identified and, and lessons uh, learned along the uh, different ages and, and years. Uh, within the NATO NATO joint exercises, there there's a continuous remaining for uh, improvements and focal points on some uh, C2 topics like uh, campaign and joint synchronization, battle rhythm, uh, the use of liaison officers, and I think not to forget uh, operations assessment. Um, in in your commands, what were during your commands? What were the biggest C two lessons identified and lessons learned during exercises? Yeah, well, the the problem with our exercises they are very expensive, and uh, they're always worthwhile, but they stop short too often of failure. Uh, and I think if you don't train to the point of failure, then you never find out where all the the weak links are. Right. You know, if you think about pipes or hoses, if you don't turn on full water pressure, you don't you don't discover where the leaks are. And, and I think that's the case with our exercises. If you really want to know, uh, do we have good uh, command and control technical as well as understanding uh, technical connections as well as understanding, then you have to put real pressure on that exercise, and, and which means sometimes you'll, they'll be more expensive because they're going to go a little bit longer, or you, you're going to um, you accept free play where the enemy does not follow the script, but the enemy is free thinking also. That's when you can really test whether or not uh, you have achieved interoperability, uh, that you're able to pass information quickly over the over secure networks belonging to multiple nations, not all five eyes. Um, I think for me, this it's it's always been frustrating that we stop short of that we don't train to the point of failure. Now, um, a couple of this is tactical level stuff, but it's human stuff. I, I learned when I was a battalion commander, I, I realized that the norm was whenever the staff would present the battalion order and the brigade order to the subordinate commanders, the norm was that the commander would always sit in the front of the middle of the road. And I remember like, why? This is my order. Why am I sitting in the middle in the best seat? I already know what it says. <laughs> and so I, I began to practice and I continued this all the way through when I was commander of U.S. Army Europe at the three-star level. I would sit on the end and, and uh, at, at a uh, right angle so I could see the faces of all of my subordinates as they listened to the intelligence update the the S three giving briefing the tasks and, and so on and I could see did they actually understand it and it took the emphasis it took the focus of the staff off of me and put it on the subordinates who actually had to carry out the task and so uh, that you know that just comes from experience and, and being alert to how humans interact 
and that's building up the confidence and trust within the team. Yeah, look, uh, that the, the S3 of a battalion or a brigade, typically a major, you know, that officer is explaining to all these captains and, and others what they're going to have to do. And so it is a, a team and you want them. And I, I didn't ever want to be the, the filter or something between them. Now, clearly, I was the one with the authority for or responsibility for the whole thing. But I had de- delegated authority to the deputy, to the operations officer, even to the sergeant major in some things to be able to do tasks. And the, and the subordinate commanders were always confident in that or they became confident in that because it was, you know, you can't replace, you can't build trust with the uh, IT. You know, you, you build trust um, between humans. And, and uh, I tried very hard in every aspect of being a commander to do that. And that uh, training to failure uh, part, which you already highlighted and mentioned in the in the need to actually change uh, NATO exercises, how can we sell that to our politicians? Yeah. Are I, there not- I know that General Cavoli, the current SACUR, I've heard him talk about the, the need for doing this. And so this is where... Um, chiefs of defense and ministers need to explain to their civilian leadership, yes, we're going to spend several million dollars on an exercise, and it, it may not turn out exactly like a play, all right, because we are training, we are building readiness. And then just point to the Russians, all their exercises, they spend all this money on Zapod exercises, those are just gigantic demonstrations. And they didn't look very well trained beginning February last year. So the uh, what, you, what you get, from our, or use uh, pick your favorite uh, football club there in the Netherlands or Germany or wherever. You know you could be sure that they're out there when they're practicing training. That they're going full full speed, trying to get better and learn from what they're doing, not just rehearsing over and over the same thing. You're very engaged in the war in Ukraine, and I really wonder what command and control lessons. Uh, do you identify for NATO command and control? So I'm not talking about Ukraine command and control, but really the NATO command and control from this current conflict. So uh, what we have observed beginning in 2014, but it really has, has, more and more people are finally paying attention to it, that if you are not able to operate on a secure network, you are going to get killed. Uh, all these Russian generals that were killed, most of them were talking on, on a cell phone. Okay, that's that's a good way to get killed real fast. And all the officers around them getting killed as well. Um, and, and so I've, I have been worried to death, frankly, about uh, our EFP battle group up in uh, Orzic in northeast Poland, where you've got an American battalion that has a British company a Polish company, a Croatian company, and a Romanian air defense battery. And all of them are under uh, a Polish brigade. They absolutely do not have a secure network. Uh, and, and so you're, you're in an area close to the Sawaki corridor that's within range of just about every Russian electronic warfare system there is. And they're going to, they're going to be intercepted, targeted, and killed unless they can fix uh, can fix that. And the same would be true, by the way, of the German-led battle group in uh, Lithuania, the Canadian-led battle group in Latvia, the uh, British-led battle group in Estonia. Uh, so what soldiers do, because they recognize the problem, they take equipment out of hide and go give it. So you've got American passing uh, American equipment with a sergeant typically up to the Polish brigade and down to the subordinates. But no unit has that equipment. So... We're talking about degradation of capability and uh, a huge vulnerability. And um, it it has been, uh, I was just, I failed. I'll just say it that way. I failed the whole time I was a commander of LANCOM and then at UCR to get this uh, officially recognized as a requirement to be able to operate on secure frequency hopping tactical FM, whatever their system is. You know, the answer can be, well, everybody has to have Talos or everybody has to have Harris or whatever it is. It has to be with whatever the nations come bring. Um, it's got to be interoperable. Um, and uh, it has to be interoperable on arrival. You know, in Afghanistan, we, we fell in on the Afghan mission network. It was kind of a hardwired. It was there. But now you're talking about 
um, in Central and Eastern Europe where units arrive and may arrive on short notice, you've got to be able to plug in to, to be able to do this. Um, the other requirement I tried for, uh, which um, I think, you know, and it's been, it's been very, uh, validated by what we see in Ukraine, is uh, secure counterfire. Uh, the only way you can effectively destroy a Russian artillery piece that, that shoots and then moves quickly to get a counterfire mission happening, the radar has got to pick it up. The data has to go to the fire direction uh, center, and then it has to go to the guns, and then you, you get it back. That's got to happen within three or four minutes. Otherwise, the Russian rocket launcher or howitzer that would have fired uh, would have already moved. And so... Uh, if you have to be able to do that digitally. For NATO, you're, it will sometimes be a, uh, perhaps it's Dutch howitzers, uh, American radar, and a British fire direction center. Okay, that today we cannot do that. We can't do that over digitally, over secure networks. Yeah, so would you say that uh, this, this the former idea where uh, lower commands would make sure that they get connected to the higher commands that is no longer sufficient? No, actually, thanks thanks for reminding that. That's still good doctrine. Um, that, but the requirements got to be whatever you, um, whatever country you are, including the U.S. or U.K. or Netherlands or Germany or Poland or whoever, part of the requirement, and this should be a NATO obligation, the requirement is you show up able to plug in to the higher headquarters, whatever their system is. Now, industry, of course, uh, this is, these are not charities, but they can they can still make plenty of money if um, if we incentivize interoperability as the requirement. And I think that's something that the alliance should be doing. We, we everybody talks about interoperability, but it's it hadn't been defined as a specific requirement. <clears throat> That's why we still have this vulnerability. But the third requirement I had in mind after the secure tactical FM and the, the ability to do digital fire, the third one was the icon of the subordinate unit automatically populates the cop, the common operating picture of the higher unit. So if you have an American battalion is assigned to a Dutch brigade, then whatever system the Dutch brigade has the American icon should automatically populate that common operating picture. And so that means, you know, you've got to have, and, and everybody will have different boxes, but the software has got to make it so. So maybe you are pushing a little bit your interoperability that used to be a lot about the logistical interoperability to reduce footprint to the technical or the, the connectivity perhaps more the emphasis on the connectivity part and the IT interoperability than on the physical interoperability. Well, you know, I, I think this didn't get much attention <clears throat> during the 20 years we were in Afghanistan because the Taliban is not going to intercept your, you know, and, 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 and launch counterfire. They're, they're going to blow you up with fertilizer. So, um, but now when you're talking about Russia as a peer adversary, that despite all their problems, it's very clear they um, still have, in my view, some of the best EW capabilities on the planet. And so, um, you know, they if, if they are able to detect or intercept messages or pick up where you're located because of the enormous signature that modern command posts um, radiate, then you're going to have a rocket come right through your roof. And then maybe I can shift it now uh, to the current, let's say, strategic level uh, of NATO, where in the terms of the AGP3, we can currently see it as a continuum of competition uh, in this phase uh, that NATO is, is in today. Nations are in the lead uh, and there is a deterrence campaign going on. And, and I really wonder where and how uh, this deterrence campaign takes place? Where is it planned? How can we get it together? 
a, a deterrence campaign against Russia, you mean? Or Yeah, well, NATO is all about deterrence. We, we don't want to get uh, in, involved. And, but we are currently not, uh, there is no formal uh, mandate. So we're, we're in this phase of continuum of competition. It's called in the AGP3. So I really wonder, so where is now the campaign taking place? So um, deterrence is, of course, in the mind of the one you want to deter. Uh, they have to believe that if they do a certain thing, that they will get crushed or it will be so costly that it's not worth doing. And so the way NATO does this, of course, is by having real capability, demonstrating that capability, and demonstrating the will to use that capability. And so uh, the capability we're talking about, of course, are lethal forces um, that are able to operate effectively multi-domain that are made up of uh, countries from across the alliance. So there's a political and cohesion aspect to it, as well as actual capability in the form of uh, maritime, air power, air defense, land power, et cetera. Uh, So this is where our exercises are so important. But also the Russians, I mean, they're not stupid. And they, if they see that we don't have ammunition or they see that we can't move that fast, it doesn't matter how many tanks we have. If we can't get to where we need to be and with with adequate logistical support to carry out the task. Uh, That's why this military mobility is such a big deal. Um, The Russians think they can get to the Suwaki corridor or uh, get into uh, uh, Estonia before we can really react, then I think the risk of them making another terrible decision goes way up. Uh, I think they can already see we do not have enough um, air and missile defense to protect, you know, half a billion European citizens. Uh, And you can be sure if they ever do make the decision to go ahead and try it, that they're going to be doing to us what they've done to Ukraine, missiles and rockets uh, going against civilian infrastructure, uh, and it will be uh, accompanied by massive cyber attacks that will make it very difficult for us to uh, effectively command and control air and missile defense. So you you have to practice that. As a bridge to the the next question, um, this could be then maybe seen as a multi-domain operation for NATO as we are still in this um, in the in the pre-article 5 phase but we still want to deter uh, the uh, the alliance concept for MDO it was finalized in March and the agreed definition of MDO currently is the orchestration of military activities across all domains and environments synchronized with non military activities to enable the alliance to deliver converging effects at the speed of relevance. And uh, so you've been commanding multiple uh, missions. If you would have MDO-capable forces, what would have been different for you? Well, I think, um, you know, the the whole concept of MDO, multi-domain operations, is a an evolution of what we used to call joint multinational, where you would always try to integrate um, uh, air power effects or uh, other other effects. I think it's a much more sophisticated and and um, useful construct to talk about MDO now, um, but it does require uh, interoperable uh, formations, interoperable processes. And to achieve it at the, that last little bit, at the speed of relevance, means it's all got to be connected. You've got to be able to transmit orders, instructions, requests for information, et cetera, uh, across multinational formations, different levels on secure networks. Just think about um, how the, uh, uh, what happens when somebody detects incoming missiles, you know, how do, you, how do you alert everybody that this is coming? How, how do uh, air defense uh, units know what, where to be oriented, what they can shoot down, what not to shoot down? Um, and MDO also is not just Article 5. This is everything we do now should be within that context of MDO because if you're trying to deter Russia from making a terrible mistake, um, 
they have to see that we are capable of executing multi-domain operations. Within the, the MDO definition by itself gives some challenges and focuses on orchestration of military activities. Uh, we've been doing that, I think, in all plans, hopefully already the orchestration of and syncing it, uh, not uh, that all all units uh, together don't know what the other end will do, but also the the synchronization with non-military actors or other instruments of power. Um, and within that military instruments of power, it's within the whole construct in who's responsible for which activity. So who should synchronize this with other instruments of power and who should be the lead in the orchestration of it? So, um, you know, the, our, our experience in over the last 20 plus years has been in Afghanistan, Iraq, or, or in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where, to be blunt, there was not as much concern about where we were operating or the fact that, you know, you were in somebody else's country. Uh, I've, we made mistakes because of that, and we got we became much more uh, alive to it. <clears throat> but basically, we were bringing in all of our own water, all of our own rations, all of our own fuel, everything. Now, if you're talking about NATO, we're talking about fighting in NATO countries. I mean, fighting will happen inside Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania. Uh, military operations will be conducted from Germany, uh, from Nordic countries. Uh, the Netherlands will be one of the most important uh, ports of entry for stuff coming in, and which means it will absolutely be a target for uh, air and missile attacks, as well as sabotage. So the understanding of the importance of host nation support, where uh, not only do you have to have capabilities where stevedores remember how to unload an Abrams tank or a Black Hawk helicopter um, and millions of rounds of artillery, you can't just do that at any port. You know, you've got to go to certain places. Uh, this is all a part of uh, orchestrating what and coordinating the activities that have to be done to deliver uh, effect. So that's why the Alliance right now is working so hard to get the command and control structure correct, which is, I think is the question you, this whole thing started with. Um, and uh, this is why it was so important that what General Cavoli, the SACIR, has accomplished, earning the confidence of 31, uh, well, the, all the members of the North Atlantic Council to approve plans, because this is where it all starts. You have a plan, uh, and from the plan comes the requirements, and from the requirements, then you say, okay, to meet this requirement, we're going to need this kind of force. And then the last thing you should do is assign headquarters that can accomplish those tasks. But the norm is you start the, the, the competition over who gets flags, who gets a headquarters, and then you try to figure out where are the boundaries and, and where are the, uh, who's going to do what and who's going to command it. But in fact, the, finally having plans now, uh, and of course there's still a lot of development has to be done on these. This is really a huge accomplishment by General Cavalli and his team <clears throat> to get those plans Accomplished, and, and of course, this was not done in a vacuum. This was done working hand in hand with the military committee, Admiral Bauer, and um, getting the uh, uh, the buy-in, the political buy-in from the nations. Because I mean, as as you guys know, and it happens frequently, one nation can hold the whole thing up for whatever reason. Uh, I think almost every nation in NATO has has held things up at one time for for one reason. Yeah, and that's that's primarily focusing on the uh, on the orchestration within the military instruments of power. But now you get also the other players, like non-military actors that come into play. Like uh, I think we seen the example with uh, uh, Elon Musk and and SpaceX. Yeah, and that 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 moves more to I think synchronization of the app. Uh, outside the military instrument of power and what the military can control and how you synchronize this with other partners, non-military actors. And I think that it's now a, a huge role where it always looks like it goes up to maybe Shakur or NATO HQ, uh, what it is. 
that synchronization part of it and the responsibility of it, uh, how do you see that uh, translated and work well for uh, for NATO? That's a great that's a great point, Jan. Uh, obviously, the more dependent you are on external sources for capability, <clears throat> the more vulnerable you become. I mean, you know, we're dependent on seaports around Europe. All of us are. We're dependent on rail networks around Europe. We don't own Deutsche Bahn or whatever uh, the different things are. You depend. We depend on contractors to do so much. So these are vulnerabilities, and I think most commanders will recognize those vulnerabilities, and you'll try to mitigate the risk associated with those vulnerabilities, like you know, all of your communications being controlled by some knucklehead like Elon Musk. Uh, but that means that we have to pay for it. And, and part of the reason we depend so much on contractors is because during peacetime, uh, ministries and parliaments decided, my gosh, why do we have all these truck drivers? Why do we have all these medical this? Why do we have all these things that we're probably never going to use or, or don't use very often? And so, therefore, because of the costs of large standing military formations of all the services, we outsource. Uh, one of the ways the United States <clears throat> tried to compensate was by putting most of the requirements or the capabilities that we need for sustained land operations into the National Guard and the Reserve so that they are in, literally part-time soldiers uh, that are mobilized when needed. And so the stuff we need for sustained long-term uh, land operations such as engineers, logistics, civil affairs, and a lot of these kind of things, those reside in the Guard and Reserve. So we can have the capability without having to pay for it all the time. Now, that that impacts on uh, on responsiveness, so, that, so you have to balance some of those things. They say amateurs talk strategy and professionals talk logistics, and you already uh, emphasized logistics in, uh, in one of your commands. <laughs> As NATO senior mentor, you are linked to the Joint Support Enabling Command. And the JSEC currently uh, also, during the summit, got uh, more strong, I think. In uh, And I wonder, how do you see the role of JSEC in relation to the Joint Forces Command? And also, where does logistics fit into this idea of multi-domain operations? So how do we ensure that this logistical part actually get the uh, importance it, it has in the sustainability of the force? This is an excellent question. Uh, fortunately, we've got a terrific commander at all now with uh, General Alexander Zofran, <clears throat> and he's an action figure with a kung fu grip. I mean, he, he understands um, that you have to train, you have to do things, you have to figure out how do they perform their tasks. And I think, unfortunately, too much time was lost uh, in the early days of the JSEC um, arguing about, you know, where, who, where is the boundary and who has responsibility for rear area protection. And, and these were all uh, religious uh, dogma uh, arguments, um, but they didn't go on a big exercise. And I think um, there's a reluctance, frankly, because they were uncertain. But until you go on, an, on a hard exercise, you don't really know. And, and uh, I, I think General Zofrank is uh, the right guy who's going to push them now to exercise. And that's when you learn from the exercise, like, okay, um, this headquarters um, has the responsibility to, in this case, make sure that everything's coming into Rotterdam or Bremerhaven or Gdansk, that it gets to where it's supposed to go. And, of course, they'll have to work with the JLSGs of the Joint Forces Commands. Uh, those guys have to exercise also. They have to be manned properly. And, and so I think um, over there, in fact, I'll be in Ulm in uh, November for Steadfast Foxtrot, which will be the first sort of large logistics exercise. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, uh, along with my mentor, Jan Brooks, uh, who will, uh, you know, will be helping to uh, help the JSEC uh, continue to move forward and, and build up credibility I mean, honestly, at the strategic and operational level, there's so many different headquarters and different nations and different entities that until you've actually demonstrated in the field that you can do something, you don't 
you don't get a seat at the table. Um, and, and so I think this is the chance to to do that. Uh, you're already mentioning uh, mentioned something about uh, uh, the visualization, the setup of a uh, common operational picture. But for a common operational picture for uh, an alliance or a coalition, I think the basic need is also uh, the willingness and the need to share, to build up that common operational picture, correct? Yeah. Uh, none of us, including the U.S., uh, wants to open up your networks to others unless it's required for the mission. I mean, it's it's natural to want to protect because we know that each of us is under barrage of cyber and people ranging from China, Russia, Iran, North Korea to idiots living in their mother's basement uh, trying to hack their way into um you know, networks. So, of course, you have to protect that. And you can't assume that everybody is disciplined on uh, maintaining their own security from their workstations and their own networks. So <clears throat> there has to be a case made uh, on why you've got to, the, the cop should be, in fact, be the COP, the common operating picture. Um, but uh, again, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, uh, you only can do that on exercise. You can't do it sitting around in a classroom, you know, drawn on a whiteboard. I mean, you have to get out there and, and demonstrate uh, before before people start getting killed in, in combat. Yeah, and a, and a common operational picture, a lot focuses on, on, on the physical dimension. But how can we integrate, if you look at then the, the cognitive and the virtual dimension in the integration of the, the common operational picture, sounds to me is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and hard to really analyze to make decisions. Well, even back in the old days, like when uh, when I was a young staff officer and we were writing with a pen on yellow legal pads, I mean, there were no, one of the, the tools we have today, you still had the same processes where the commander would lay out his priorities. Uh, you had information requirements, you had priority intelligence requirements, you had these processes that are still valuable It's just that today you can uh, move things a lot faster. In fact, so fast that it's hard to be, uh, you, you, you're inundated with information. And so it does take um, real discipline, but it starts at the top. This is the responsibility of the commander to say, here's my priority. And then a chief of staff that understands what the commander's after is able to sort through the knowledge management tools and uh, and you know, looking at the time and how do you help the commander? I, I mean, at the end of the day, why do you have a staff? The staff exists for two reasons. Number one, to uh, make sure the commander has what he or she needs to make the best possible decision, not a perfect decision, but the best possible decision within the context and the constraints. And then the second reason you have a, a staff is to make sure that subordinate units are successful in carrying out what has to be done. Um, that's the, uh, uh, w whether you're talking about in the 18th century or the year 2023, um, do you have the tools and processes and the discipline, discipline to accomplish that? Uh, thanks for making that nice bridge and highlighting your experience as a young officer to doing basically what is currently needed in uh, our last topic uh, focuses uh, on, on training and education. Because during the initial uh, military training on academy, they focus on or developing professional and service-specific skill sets. Uh, and then at the next level, let's say the, the, the captain major levels, you're mostly concentrate on, on the joint scenarios, traditional joint, if you're lucky also to work within, uh, I think, NATO. Because not a lot of countries have a operational level or even a joint view of, uh, of operating. So at the national levels for the nation, so they're now educating the new commanders of the future. Uh, what challenges do you see for the new commanders and where they specifically should focus on the training and the education part? First of all, you people need to internalize the, the inherent value of our alliance. You know, there is no perfect coalition. NATO is not perfect. It's frustrating every day and Uh, it's hard, but at the end of the day, that's the best guarantee we have that we won't get 
end up in a war because all of our adversaries and potential adversaries think about 31, soon to be 32 nations, hopefully more later, combined capabilities. Uh, uh, that's that's our guarantee. Uh, but it doesn't just it doesn't just happen automatically. So uh, officers and commanders need to think. I'm always going to be in command in a multinational formation, and and get used to it. And now for some people that's uh, that's simple. For for others it's it's not it's still not normal. You know most Americans are not in Europe. So unlike in the old days uh, when half of the army was in Europe, now only a uh, less than ten percent. So it's it's not normal. It's, or it's not routine, I should say. Uh, but I, I, I have discovered that's true of a lot of uh, allied nations also, that they are still kind of insular inside their their own formation. So um, accept and, in fact, embrace the need to fight in a multinational formation and, and, and make and insist on interoperability from whether it's command and control, logistics, um, the tactical procedures, um, and you have to assume you're going to show up just days before the conflict actually happens. You're not going to have six months to, to train up and get ready. And uh, that's if we focus at the future commanders with, with our current commanders in place. Do we need to train and educate them also uh, with a, an extra twist? You know, I, I think that uh, the norm should be for our schooling that we are multinational for our education courses. It's not good enough now to have just, you know, to go to the U.S. Army War College and, oh, there's our British guy, there's our German guy, there's our Dutch guy. I mean, it, it has to be more integrated than that so that people are accustomed uh, to uh, multiple languages and, and uh, multiple backgrounds. Uh, and I have to tell you, um, I was impressed as, as I became older and started encountering allied officers from other countries how much more combat experience they had than I did. I mean, they will have been on UN missions or EU missions or uh, doing things in Africa, the Middle East, uh, that not, almost no American had done. And so um, it was a useful part of building the cohesion of the alliance. Yeah, I have one one thing. So I think currently we are all um, want to up great and strengthen our forces and at the NATO summit the allies agreed to strengthen the NATO command uh, and control to ensure more agility and resilience but at the same time we see that nations are also strengthening their national civil military C2 structures uh, the Netherlands started uh, uh, the creation of a PJHQ Germany is uh, 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 starting a new uh, PJHQ like structures how do we now strengthen the link between those national C2 structures and the NATO command, uh, the NATO command and control? And then additional to that, uh, national commanders like my army commander or my navy commander, um, they want to prepare their troops and strengthen their capabilities. So who should they contact within NATO to see what they actually should prepare their troops for or what capabilities they should develop? Well, um, the the uh, planning or the uh, approved plans that we talked about earlier, that's what will drive the requirements. And so let's just say, let's pick the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands will have been tasked or will be tasked um, in accordance with these plans to deliver certain capabilities. And that should drive the bulk of Dutch uh, force structure development, uh, exercises, preparation to be ready to carry out their task, which is which was the norm for the uh, the our Royal Army of the Netherlands back in the Cold War when we had a Dutch Corps that was part of, you know, on the inner German border between East and West Germany. We, we had plans, we had places, we exercised that. I think getting back to those kinds of plans, which is which I see coming now, is going to help drive that. And, and that's where that's where the Royal Netherlands Army will draw, derive its requirements, will be from the Netherlands' commitment to its share of those plans. Same will be true for the Portuguese, the Spanish, Turkey, Italy, Greece, all, everybody is uh, how do you do your, carry out your NATO tasks, your commitment. 
Is there any important C2 topic that we haven't discussed and that you still would like to mention? Everything about command to be successful, I think, depends on, uh, on knowing that you're going to be operating in conditions of uncertainty. Get comfortable with the fact that you're never going to have perfect information, but yet you're still going to have to uh, make decisions and get things done, which means that there will inevitably be uh, times where mistakes are made. And so you want to make those mistakes in training so that junior leaders are, feel confident that in making decisions with per without perfect information, and they see they're not going to get killed by their commander because they made a mistake. Instead, uh, that's where the trust comes from, where the commander then invests time in his or her subordinates to help them get confident in making those decisions without perfect information. Um, that's, so it doesn't matter how many computers you have, you never buy perfect information. Yeah, thank you, Ben, for your valuable insights. It's been really uh, an enlightening uh, conversation uh, and perfect. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.